You're listening to the Inbound Logistics Podcast with today's guest, Dave Jackson, CEO of Night Swift Holdings. In April of 2017, Night Transportation Inc. and Swift Transportation merged to form a trucking powerhouse with an enterprise value in excess of $5 billion. Dave Jackson, CEO of the newly minted Night Swift Holdings, joins inbound logistics publisher Keith Biondo to discuss the merger, talk about logistics solutions they can provide, and offer some insight into what lies ahead for the industry. Dave, thanks for sitting down with us today and and helping our audience understand uh, what Knight and Swift uh, has got planned for the uh, shipping community. Uh, Knight and Swift uh, merger has been in the news lately, and so I thought I'd ask you some of the details of that and uh, what it means to our uh, audience in terms of the capabilities of shipping, supply chain efficiencies, and more. Okay, well, I appreciate the opportunity. It's, uh, it's a privilege and pleasure to be with you, and uh, I'd be happy to talk about what this new, uh, this new merger means. You know, we, we announced it back in April. It took us a few months to get the deal closed. Uh, it was closed uh, in early September here. And so, uh, so now uh, both Knight and Swift are under common ownership under a, a parent or holding company called Knight Swift Transportation. But uh, both of the companies continue to run independent. Swift Transportation was already the largest truckload carrier in North America, and now with the addition of Knight, becomes twice the size of the next closest, and so uh, becomes a company with over 23,000 tractors and a fleet of over 77,000 trailers and providing the largest fleet capacity in uh, in North America. And so we plan to continue to operate those businesses independently, but of course leverage the intelligence and economies of scale where we can behind the scenes, but uh, but do so in a way that's, that's a seamless experience for the Swift Driving Associates who are accustomed to Swift and the Knight Driving Associates that are accustomed to Knight, and uh, likewise for customers, both for Knight and Swift. It's interesting how we have many customers in common. There, there are some new on both sides, but we have many in common, and, uh, and yet we do different things for them and fill different, different supply chain needs. But likewise, both of the companies, Knight and Swift, have different network needs and different strengths in their capabilities. And so we don't want to mess that up. And so the diseconomies of scale come very quickly with size in this industry, hence that may be one of the reasons why uh, the average truckload carrier is so small. So we think that there's tremendous risk in trying to mess with that frontline day-to-day. So customers and drivers should expect similar and hopefully even improved experience in dealing with Swift or Knight, but not dealing with both at the same time. So that's uh, very interesting, and, and certainly the drivers and, and your uh, associates in uh, both Knight and Swift are the, the key component of this. Are there any uh, gaps that the uh, new Knight Swift company fills, complementary uh, things or uh, service areas, uh, which maybe one is stronger than the other that our, uh, our audience can look forward to seeing more of? Yeah, that's a great question. I think geographically we're both we're both very diverse. You know, both started out as really in the West Coast or in the Southwest, and and uh, both have very quickly over time developed. Of course, Swift's been at it a lot longer, about 50 years, and Knight's uh, 27 years old. And of course, the Knight's got their roots at Swift back in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, started Knight in, in 1990. But both both have followed somewhat similar patterns in, in opening uh, terminals, or service centers, depending on what you call them. It's the same idea, but a facility uh, really throughout the country. So there's about 70 between the two companies with some overlap, but, but, uh, but again, we won't be consolidating those locations. Now, <clears throat> when you look at maybe complements, uh, of course, Swift has a, a very large intermodal presence. There are only a few players that would have that kind of reach and capacity in terms of boxes. And so you know that's a different animal than what what Knight had before. Uh, that business has has not uh, has not performed historically uh, at a level that uh, provides an appealing return. And so, uh, but we we think that it's uniquely positioned, and uh, and we think there may be an opportunity for that to do well. And so we're 
we'll put our heart and soul into into trying to help with that the best that we can. But that's a that's a new piece. I would say that the non-asset based brokerage side of the business is one that Knight has focused on with particular focus in in the last five six years. We started it probably 12 years ago, and uh, and really have seen pretty significant growth since probably 2013 to today. And so it's now roughly 20% of Knight's business, of its revenue, comes from the non-asset-based brokerage side of the business. And so Knight has been able to figure out how to, how to make it a seamless experience for the, for the customer who, who might have seasonal surges or might have needs that come up from time to time. And, uh, and they can leverage usually the same customer side uh, person or the same person on our side that manages the customer relationship that's very familiar with with their freight, with their network, with their needs, and they can both coordinate using them on our trucks and often with a trailer pool and supplement that with with third-party carriers. And so um, it's it's largely integrated into the night operation. And at Swift, it's it's probably more of a separate entity, if you will, and it represents a very small percentage, less than 10% of their revenues. And yet SWIFT uh, has made tremendous investment in on the customer side, on the managing the customer side of the business, and they provide more capacity, as I said earlier, than anybody else. And so they're in a unique position to be able to really help customers through those, those, those seasonal surges and times when it's just hard to find trucks and, and you know, you have a finite fleet, but Theoretically, we could develop a nearly infinite fleet with with the many partner carriers, and so between the two companies, we think that there's somewhere around 30,000 uh, unique third-party partner carriers that that we have under contract between the two brokerages. And so, there's a big opportunity we think to help Swift to help the offering to the customer in particular with a with a very uh, competent, meaningful, well-integrated non-asset brokerage to supplement the fleet business. And so I would say those would be maybe two areas that would probably represent the biggest complement to one another. Well, that's uh, that's extremely interesting, particularly because uh, it, it seems the way you've described it is that there are uh, differences based on the uh, organic growth uh, of each individual company. You've had a little bit of a head start on the uh, logistics side, if you will, the third-party logistics or brokerage side, and uh, they haven't on the SWIFT side, but on the SWIFT side, they've got a lot of capacity that you could fold in. So are you going to take this as a unified solution to customers of both Knight and SWIFT? No. Again, we, we, will, uh, we will work separately, independently as companies. Now, you know, there may be some synergies to be gained in terms of working together on the buying side where there's visibility to all of the customer relationships or the third-party relationships we have with carriers. And of course, that's all aimed at finding the most efficient way to move a load. And so the larger the pool we can have access to from the buying side, the better. And so there may be some opportunities there. But as it relates to the customers, this is very much you know, Knight will have solutions and Swift will have solutions, and so um, it's uh, it's important that 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 brokerage piece be understood by the, the sales team, understood by that account management team, if you will, the group that's behind the scenes that's accepting the load tenders, that's making sure that they're assigned to trucks that are in a position to deliver on time, and so it's important that. That, uh, that that's well integrated to the existing system. So this isn't just a bolt-on. And so because of that, that's why it's important that the SWIFT sales and the SWIFT account management are the ones that are involved in selling and in accepting and executing on those loads, whether they go on a SWIFT truck or whether they go on a third-party SWIFT partner carrier. And, and of course, likewise, Night. Well, that's a that's a great answer. Uh, but the uh, the net result is that you've got uh, more logistic solutions. Uh, whoever's representing the face to the customer, and more capacity. So I th- I think that's an important efficiency uh, and a synergy 
from, from this uh, development. So uh, that takes us to the next area that, that we're interested in, which would be some of the efficiencies, uh, either in technology, that uh, can create a uh, better visibility for the customers, more efficient uh, uh, relationships. Can you talk a little bit about how some of those back office things that you mentioned earlier uh, will impact uh, over time? Yeah. Well, there, there, there would clearly be some specific things that just come along with managing a trucking business uh, as best as you possibly can. And so, of course, on the purchasing front, there would be some synergy opportunities there. When it comes to uh, managing safety, you know, you just can you can line the P&L side by side and, uh, and kind of go down the list and see uh, where which fleets have strengths in different areas. And so, you know, we'll work on, on those. There's some opportunities to improve in a few areas there. Uh, what's very exciting is when you do think about technology. And so if we look at, you know, the good news, bad news about technology in this space is, you know, there's probably four main buckets as we see it for technology investment. So that's the good news. Is it's on, there's only four key areas we see that there's opportunities there. The, the bad news is there's only four, so you better get all four right. And right. Uh, and this is an industry where, because of the capital intensiveness and the typical low returns, you don't see the asset-based guys making the kind of capital investments in technology as we see the non-asset folks make. And so uh, we feel like we're now to a, a sufficient size that, that it can still be a very small percentage of revenue, but we're talking about $5 billion in revenues now between the combined companies, and both have the same four buckets to focus on. And so... We think we can bring a more concentrated, more focused investment to IT, and, and I'll talk about what, those, what we see those four buckets as being, but, uh, but we think we can bring a more concentrated investment and leverage the vast experience and the exposure that we have to the supply chain and how and where we see everything. And so if we were to look at those buckets, we would say that there is a customer bucket, and this is the... This is where we provide visibility. This is where we develop the, the kind of tools that allow us to do beyond just transactional truckload moves. And so uh, both businesses have different types of software that we can use to try and optimize and create dedicated operations. Um, the, both have 3PL platforms that have been purchased and developed. On the night side, we've probably breathed more uh, life and more effort into that, and we have some of our most experienced people in the industry are leading that effort uh, of a soup to nuts uh, 3PL that includes everything from LTL all the way through to full truckload, but figuring out how to find things that uh, find ways to, to move and to manage a, uh, the transportation part of the supply chain for customers. And so uh, we, we think that there's massive opportunity for us to provide value both with our understanding and the network and the technology that we have and that we will continue to develop. And so you have that customer-facing piece, and uh, it's one where you know some players have come in to provide some visibility to customers, particularly when they're moving loads on brokers. And, and so we think a lot of that can be done and can become more standardized instead of have, having to go through a, a particular player. So then, then there's a driver bucket where, you know, the, uh, the the technology inside the cab of the truck is nowhere near what it really should be. And uh, and so open platforms are now creating where we can develop useful apps and to help and assist the driver and, and particularly help in, in the areas of safety. And then we, we view another bucket is is a bucket that involves our third-party carrier partners. You know, that's a, that's a group of small carrier capacity that this country depends on Move. They move a majority of the loads, and the reality is at every angle, everybody's kind of taking their piece out of them, whether right. it's a factory company or whether it's them having to pay full retail price on about everything that they buy. And so we buy, for example, 350 million gallons of diesel fuel as a combined company every year. And, and we think there are some things we can do to, to perhaps help those partner carriers and, and not be so exploited at every angle as they have been. And so we think technology can be a huge play there, and we have a lot of exciting ideas that we think can lead to a win-win situation for both the carrier and for us, which would allow us 
to have more consistent, more reliable capacity when we go to our customers uh, to help uh, make sure that freight can move uninterrupted. And then that fourth one would be <clears throat> the concept of constantly leveraging technology to become more efficient and leveraging technology as an accelerator in the business in how we process and execute and do everything that we do. So those are the four areas. You're going to see us spend a lot more money, and we're not going to do it in a way that's, that, that uh, two different companies are trying to solve the same problem at the same time. You're going to see uh, resources be, be pooled together to help. We're very excited about the folks uh, on that side of the business at SWIFT. Uh, we've, got, we've been investing in the team at night, and so we see that as an area where those two coming together with greater focus can lead to great solutions for our customers and for our stakeholders being drivers and third-party carriers as well. So that's a great outline, Dave. Uh, you touched on two areas which are of great concern to our audience, um, the capacity issue, which you mentioned, but also the impact of technology on capacity. There are many ways which you've just detailed that it's very, very good. Uh, some of our uh, readers and listeners and viewers are concerned about the impact of technology in reducing capacity. So we recently surveyed our audience base, and it, it turns out that 22% uh, of our carrier respondents to our Top 100 Trucker Survey told us that hours of service have had zero impact on their operations. But on the other side, when we surveyed shippers, 40% of the respondents, these are shippers, uh, experienced capacity shortages. And uh, for example, ELD has not even kicked in yet. And, and ELD, according to what we've been hearing uh, from some, some of the smaller carriers and owner operators, uh, is going to have a great impact in, in terms of their ability to continue to uh, provide the right kind of service and in some cases uh, even survive. So can you speak a little bit about uh, capacity in the market and the, the impact of the hours of service and also the, the uh, coming implementation of uh, electronic logging devices uh, for the industry? Sure. Yeah, those are, those are big, relevant topics. And so um, maybe I'll, I'll try and maybe add a little commentary to, to some of what you're seeing in that survey and that idea that, you know, you have only 22% have seen or think that it's been, that hours of service have had zero impact. You know, what we've seen happen is small carrier capacity has, they have not adopted ELDs yet. And, uh, right. and I've, seen, I've seen various surveys, many of the Wall Street analysts have done surveys, I've seen some other surveys done, and, and there, there is very much a wait and see or that it, it'll never go into effect despite all of, all of the heads up. You have fleets like Knight, for example, we've had electronic logs for more than six years and uh, Warner has had them for probably a decade, and uh, most of the large guys have adopted them four or five years ago plus. So they're effective, they're important, and I and I think it's an important step in a in an industry that really is only about 37 years old post deregulation in 1980. And right, uh, and it's needed. And and there are way too many truck related deaths. And so this is it's appropriate for the community. It's appropriate for everybody. And I think that. Uh, the, the capacity shortages that, that you're seeing noted in your survey and that as we look at the third-party data out there uh, that suggests that the imbalance of loads posted versus trucks posted, if you will, it certainly suggests that, that we're heading into, if not already, in a position where there are too few trucks chasing too many loads. And I think that there are a multitude of, of issues that have led to that that are totally independent of an upcoming ELD, and uh, I think in the, the ELDs will be felt more so in 2018. Right, 18. So, 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 Dave, the, the I think what what we're seeing from our audience is that there is almost there's always naysayers and uh, folks worrying, but obviously you need to do a threat assessment if you're going to keep your supply chains uh, moving in the right direction. So we see. Uh, our survey also showed zero respondents said that the economy is going to go down. Uh, in 2018. So obviously if there's more economic activity, uh, there's going to be more trucks on the road, more product being moved. And, and so that there's an impact, an overall larger impact because of the, uh, the economy. Uh, in terms of the demographics, you have an aging driver pool 
And uh, there is a lot of investment in infrastructure because of uh, policies uh, of the current administration. But also there's a lot of rebuilding. And, and uh, traditionally, many of the uh, drivers gravitate towards uh, construction jobs and, and, and so on, which is going to be because of the two hurricanes and the rebuilding efforts that we've experienced there. And, and so some of our carriers have reported the hours of service have uh, decreased their efficiency by 5%. So when you add some of those factors together, and then the implementation of ELDs, you can understand why some of our audience are concerned about what capacity is going to look like as we work through some of these issues. Yeah, I think you've, I think you've laid it out very well. I think, uh, I think there is reason to perhaps be prepared for the environment. Uh, we definitely have seen uh, our customers reach out to try and secure capacity it's a, it's a dramatic shift from where things were, I would say, starting about the second quarter of 2015 when we saw the, the market get much more competitive. We especially saw the non-asset-based brokers. They seemed to really double down and make year-long commitments on the bet that they could buy better throughout the year, with their, and they were able to. And so we saw massive declines, double-digit declines almost immediately in uh, mid-2015 in the price that was being paid for carrier capacity through brokers. And so, uh, and so that played out for 15. It played out again, a repeat in 2016, and frankly started out that way in 17, but started to reverse course by, two, by the second quarter of 17. And so I think that there was, uh, you know, we saw, we saw massive uh, declines in spot market pricing in the space for two consecutive years. And so uh, I think that's resulted in the fact that uh, according to one study I saw in 2016, only two tenths of 1% of trucking companies raised driver pay in 2016. And really in 2015, driver pay stopped increasing. 2017, it largely has not increased despite the difficulty that's been out there. And so we're going on almost a few years now of flat, flat wages for drivers because the rate market simply doesn't support it. And, and we have seen an alarming trend just happen here in the most recent labor report that showed that trucking jobs were actually down, which they're never down. And, you know, every trucking company, if you're open, you're always hiring drivers. And so we, we've, we've seen now a data point that shows the driving jobs were down. Manufacturing were up huge. I think the number was like 36,000 new jobs. And construction jobs were up almost that much as well, and so, so we're we're seeing we're seeing trucking lose to the, the vocational labor battle, which we've 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 lost. We've we've been behind, but we haven't really lost like like in the dramatic fashion that we're seeing. To say nothing for what you had mentioned that you know this is an aged aging driver force. We have ba- more baby boomers that seem to be coming off the road than the next the next generation coming on, and so. Um, all of that is leading us to what what we believe is the most difficult driver environment we have ever seen, and we have been saying that since since about May or June, and it has gotten progressively worse. And we think that if it keeps up, we're going to find ourselves in a in a bit of a crisis, and maybe already at that level. And and so drivers need wages. Uh, they have they have not gone up much in the last decade. They they had a chance to go up a little bit in 2014 and maybe early 15 after having been flat since 2008. And so the spread for a truck driver over other vocational labor where he sleeps in his own bed, he or she, and, and they can stay home, that spread has largely evaporated. And that was all pre-hurricane. And so now you have project uh, employment in Texas and in Florida that pays massive amounts per hour, that pays two or three times or sometimes four times an hour what a driver would make right. and in this project labor. And so that those numbers that has not been felt yet in the space. And so and, and you know, and oil is oil and gas have gotten a little bit uh, more competitive and they're they're pulling from that vocational labor force as well. And so the largest barricade to adding new capacity this next go around in the cycle will be drivers and because you just have to have them and uh, and it's not happening 
And so the only way to solve that is drivers are going to need to be paid more. It's going to need to be a more competitive, more compelling job. And so uh, that's going to take that's going to take some rate, and it just it hasn't it hasn't existed. Now uh, there's a second backstop to that, and that is that used equipment prices are are at record lows. I saw a report last week that said the prices were even down over a year ago, which we wouldn't have thought was possible. So uh, we've got we've had two years of of record low used equipment prices. Well, as you know, most small carriers. Their equity, their borrowing base, is the equity they have in their equipment, and right. and so when you're upside down, that's a real problem to growth. It's a real problem to even refreshing your fleet. So we've seen that in the new truck orders over the last two years, but when we look at the used market, it just about it usually improves when you see rates go up. Well, the problem is, in 2014, we flooded the market by we bought about twice as many trucks as we normally would in an average year in 2014 and oversupplied it in 15 a bit and and so those four-year-old trucks are going to start rolling off in 2018 so right about the time that you would think rates would go up and that would get healthier we're going to be flooded with used equipment again and so so the the economics are going to be very challenging particularly for the uh, the small carrier independent of ELDs and so I think I think it's it would be appropriate it's an important time for those that that shippers of truckload capacity to just to to be in tune with those, not be scared, not be feared, not 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 operate in fear, but but there now would probably be a pretty good time to secure the right kind of capacity so that there's not any kind of interruption and, and what could be uh, you know an interesting time, especially if we see economic growth continue as many uh, as many believe it will. So this is uh, less about Knight and Swift and more about the uh, the industry uh, which you're a leader in. Is there a consensus across the industry for for raising driver pay? Is there a consensus from your perspective on the shippers uh, side for accepting those kinds of increased transportation costs? You know, it, it, it's uh, certainly it's top of mind for the carriers. You know, we know how much money we're spending to try and recruit drivers. We know what our turnover looks like as others are trying to poach drivers and and offer all kinds of things and incentives. And the reality is the job needs to pay at least another $10,000 to be competitive right now. By the time we get to that level, you know, if we don't get there, if it takes us a while, then we're going to be we're going to be behind by the time we get there. And so. So it's top of mind for carriers. Our, our issue is we don't have the economics. Most trucking companies, most publicly traded companies are, are performing at some of the lowest profit margins they've had in the last, you know, in the last, certainly in the last five years. And that's happened as prices have eroded, and yet new equipment costs more than ever, and the used equipment is worth, is worth less than ever. Right. And so, uh, and and, uh, and and everything else is just about everything else has been inflationary. I can't think of anything that we buy that hasn't that hasn't uh, seen pricing increases. And yet you've had an industry that's 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 had really two consecutive years of declining pricing. And so it's just not sustainable. And so driver wages are the largest expense for a trucking company. They typically represent uh, somewhere in that 30 to 35 percent of their revenue. And so uh, so what will happen is uh, as trucking companies feel like they're going to be able to get rate increases and begin to get rate increases, what you'll see happen is, is you'll see a larger portion of that increase will go to the driver initially with the idea that sometime you'll get made up for that. So that, that could mean that you know more than 50% in some cases of any kind of rate improvement is just going to find its way directly to the driver. And uh, I can I can tell you, Knight Swift. We announced back in April that we were going to increase a penny a mile across the board to all the drivers. That's that is kind of a stay bonus because we we opened ourselves up to potentially other trucking companies that would want to try and come and come after our drivers and and confuse them in one way or another. And so so we took a proactive step, not because we had the rate, but because we felt like we needed to. And so uh, there, we're already a little behind, if you will. And so. Uh, I, I'm not sure, you know, how well that's understood throughout the whole supply chain, uh, but that's that's a very powerful factor, and uh, and I think what will drive uh, the rate environment that we see. 
Well, related to that, we do survey the uh, shippers. Obviously, a lot of them use uh, trucking services, truckload services, uh, uh, fundamentally, too. And what we see when we talk to them, uh, when they're not in the room with their carrier partners, that the most important thing to them is reliability. And that would be at 90%, and customer service at 67%. But sandwiched in between those two data points is price at 86%. So what you've outlined there is uh, a pretty good case for the industry, trucking industry, and shippers coming to some kind of consensus to jointly solve uh, this capacity issue, or some are calling it the 2018 capacity perfect storm. So can you talk a little bit more? You mentioned the uh, the logistics side of your business uh, earlier on. Uh, our, our readers are... Uh, very concerned with that because of uh, many factors. Uh, supply chain impatience is something we talk about. Uh, I think we've been acculturated on the consumer side to expecting almost immediate delivery for free, uh, sometimes bending the laws of physics. Uh, and that's, that's uh, leached over to the industrial and commercial side in, in expectations. The, the destruction of density, I guess you might call it, with the uh, requirement for smaller and smaller uh, shipments. How can the, uh, the logistics operations uh, solve or address some of those, those issues, uh, Dave? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it, it certainly is a fascinating development, you know, and uh, as you've seen supply chains evolve and move to a more regional model as opposed to a one distribution or an east and a west, and then now and now you find that in, in the, even the most sophisticated uh, retail supply chains that, that there's a new way, a different way to distribute in the e-commerce world. And uh, I think, I think an, an underlying important point to understand is that full truckload, irregular route full truckload is, is by far the least expensive way to move anything. And uh, at least with a short transit time and a lot of control, which is required in in uh, in, in e-commerce. So yes, you could you could you could move a long haul load via intermodal for less, but but boy, intermodal it might work for uh, building and storing inventories, but not for fulfillment of e-commerce purchases. And so this move to build concentration. And, and a critical mass where you can take, you can move away from maybe relying on LTL shipments and create more full truckload shipments. Um, it makes all the difference in executing e-commerce in an affordable way. And so I saw one retailer, for example, that their transportation cost as a percentage of, of their revenue was somewhere in that 3%, 3 to 4% range and their cost on e-commerce was just over 10%. Right. And but of course they had to be in the e-commerce game because hey it's today's world but really it it was eating them up and I I think we've seen this in the LTL world where the LTL folks uh, the LTL providers seem to have so far benefited maybe the most from e-commerce. Well, you'd have to say the parcel guys first, but Right. The LTL guys today are the ones that are that are that are really that are doing well, and and in part because everybody has adopted this principle. The consumer has this expectation that if you can't get it delivered to me within two business days, that I'm probably going to abandon the cart and I'm not going to complete the order. So you got to be able to get me something, anything I want within two business days, and so that seems to be the gold standard everybody's looking for. But few have the kind of concentration to do that with full truckloads, particularly because we've seen a, a total change in the retail market where now it's not, can you get down to having a store that has 100,000 SKUs in, in, a, in, a, you know, in the largest of retail stores that we have, which was a focus they had, many have less than that, to where you know the largest e-commerce players today have hundreds of millions of SKUs. And so the question is, how can you have the broadest the broadest base that they'll get there in two days. And so uh, because of that, I think LTL has seen a lot of benefit. Over time, as clearly as e-commerce appears here to stay, we, we think that we'll see truckload find its way in there. And, and we have done some things with customers that I think are exceptionally innovative in how we've been able to time and leverage 
truckloads in a place that traditionally would have used LTL. And so um, over time, we think that we can, uh, we think that there's a big opportunity for us to help customers move from that 10 or 11% of revenue with, with e-commerce transportation costs back back lower to those those mid to low single digit numbers as, as they incorporate more truckload. And, and hey, one thing about e-commerce, boy, there is a lot of truckload moving back and forth because if you think about it, in this effort to say, okay, we want to have this very diverse product offering, SKU offering, and we want to have it located in places we can get it there within hopefully a couple of days. Well, you know, you've got your providers that are selling those products. I mean, they can't provide usually even a full truckload of the product and and let alone send it to four or five or six different locations that are staged across the country. And so the ability to kind of consolidate all of those out of one regional market and then move full truckloads full of a diverse range of products from one distribution center to another distribution center on the other side of the country and vice versa, bring another truckload that's sourced from providers that may be in that area and bring those back uh, there's this opportunity for LTL and parcel consolidation and full truckloads that create a lot of truckload moves just intra the distribution network for e-commerce. And so uh, we've seen a lot of that already. And so there's just only a handful of players that have gotten to the level of, uh, of volume where they can take advantage of that, but they see a massive cost uh, improvement as a result. Well, I think the key word for me and for our audience is volume. As I, as we said earlier, the uh, traditional approach for our industry is to find density because it re- reduces costs. And the trends which uh, we've seen today, the Amazon effect, if that's what you want to call it, or supply chain impatience, uh, is fighting that. But what you've outlined there are steps to, uh, to put that more into balance uh, to the benefit of not only the uh, shipping community but also consuming community. So that's uh, g- welcome news. So I'd like to switch gears uh, on you a little bit. Uh, every year we host a, uh, a conference with our Mexican partners. We have Inbound Logistics uh, Mexico, which is now Inbound Logistics Latin America. And last year there was a lot of crying uh, tears in their Tecate, as we uh, said, based on some of the anticipated uh, trade friction between the U.S. and Mexico. And uh, this year when I was down there uh, earlier this week, there seemed to be smiles all around. We had uh, presenters from the Mexican, officials from the Mexican government, and actually some presenters who were involved in the uh, NAFTA negotiations. And, and some of the issues are well known. Uh, customs automation, there's a disparity there. Access to market, there's a disparity there. Uh, labor, dispute resolution, infrastructure. So uh, I'd like to ask you what your take is on NAFTA in general and and the uh, trading relationship that we have with Mexico, if you could add something. Yeah. Well, we, uh, in the in the, the new combined entity, we own uh, Transvex, which Transvex is one of the largest um, Mexico carriers, and uh, and that's a that's a wholly owned subsidiary. So we do a lot of uh, a lot of business down in Mexico. You know, it's it's an interesting market how things have changed over time, and uh, the northbound and southbound demand, and how how those two work together. They flipped, if you will, and in, in uh, over the last you know decade or so. And you know, one of the unique things about Mexico is you've really got you've really got a few real key cities where all the freight moves and it almost feels like as uh, we've been trending towards the development or maturation of their supply chain into more of a regional regional distribution network a la the way we did in uh, in the United States and maybe they're uh, you know 10 or 20 years behind in that process uh, with the change in e-commerce and the fast adoption rate of smartphones in Mexico it's possible that they might kind of skip a generation of uh, of supply chain and and move to something that could be very efficient and and I think just the geographic densities fit very well with a with an e-commerce type of a play and so so we see we see good things intra Mexico as it relates to products moving back and forth 
we think that you know the the two countries could work a lot more efficiently if if there was better visibility to products that would move that moved as they moved throughout the border and, and down and so you know we we think there's a lot of opportunity to improve to make it a better experience going both ways when you look at at NAFTA and the risk of where it is politically you know we wouldn't be terribly excited about huge impuestos I'm trying to think of the word in English. Big taxes, tariffs, big tariffs coming across the border, and in part because if you want to talk about something that will dramatically increase the cost of transportation, you know, if you look at our used or our brand new equipment, uh, we have seen in the last five six years a dramatic increase in the amount of new trucks, new Class Eight trucks that are used in the United States that are manufactured in Mexico. And so in terms of a free trade, so this might be a different angle than you would have thought, but as the as the largest fleet used equipment prices and new prices are very important to us and obviously a massive input into what we all pay for transportation. Right. And and the challenge is if you looked at the dollars that are coming northbound across the border from Mexico versus the number of dollars of equipment that are moving southbound, it is a monumental difference, in part because there have been stiff regulations that have begun to slowly loosen. Now a six-year-old truck can cross the border south, but it didn't used to be able to do that. So Mexico, I think, has set themselves up where, you know, they've kind of got the best of both worlds. They can get manufacturing Equipment can be manufactured there, but then other people can't send used equipment very easily into their market, so it forces that market to, to be used that way. Well, I read one study that said that the average age of a truck in Mexico was about 18 years old. And so the opportunity the United States has with trucks that have an average age that are closer to six years old to maybe move equipment south and help them from a safety and even reliability standpoint as opposed to huge tariffs for those new equipment, the manufacturing that's coming up, maybe maybe that would be the kind of win-win scenario that would help both markets. And so we hope that that kind of common sense can prevail, where maybe a couple of two or three used equipment, uh, used pieces of equipment can find their way across the border to offset, you know, the economics that that would be coming northbound across the border, and that would keep uh, the, the equipment prices in check probably create a little bit more stability in the used equipment market in the United States, but likewise would uh, would limit any kind of inflation that we might see for new equipment coming across. So I, I, ho- I hope that, that we can look at the world in win-win ways when we look at NAFTA and whether that, that means some changes that happen over time or not. But uh, but. Suffice it to say, Mexico is a is, is developing very, very fast and, and has the potential to become a very sophisticated supply chain ahead of its time. You're right. I didn't think of that uh, perspective on the used equipment, um, lack of accessibility in, in that market. And it is uh, an example of, of the uh, understanding that uh, Mexico has evinced, or at least some of the representatives uh, from the government of Mexico at our recent uh, Supply Chain Leaders Summit, that they have to come to terms with some of these things. And and I think more than uh, I saw the 12 months prior, they're ready to uh, to discuss these things, and they seem to be more open, at least they said they were, to uh, addressing some of these uh, disparities. So that's, that's good news. So now I'm going to ask you to dust off your crystal ball in general. Trucking is a leading economic indicator, and what you've got now is uh, a scale uh, which is a lot larger than you had access to before. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about the positive effects of the economy in 2018 here in the U.S. and how that uh, impacts what your operations, your solutions, your go-to-market strategy is going to be, and ultimately how that benefits the shipping community. Boy, my crystal ball, uh, once it gets real foggy once you get more than a couple months out there. So... Uh, <laughs> Hopefully this isn't being recorded, right, Keith? Uh, no, oh no, not at all. <laughs> so yeah, just between us, huh? Right, just between us and maybe sixty thousand other people. That's all. <laughs> okay, that's thank you. Very comforting. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, 
when we look at the space from from our vantage point, uh, you know, this is a supply and demand uh, situation in uh, in an industry that is uh, that is largely affected by macroeconomic factors. So when we look at those two changes on the supply side, on the transportation side, though they have massive impact to the impact of a few hundred basis point swings from year to year. The broader economy. It seems to change in in you know tens of basis points, if you will. It just doesn't move as much, and so hence we end up focus, focusing probably 80% of our time on what is going on with supply. Is supply coming in, or is supply going out, and uh, and what is supply going to do in the future? Because we think if you get that right, then you're probably you got an 80% chance that you're going to get it right. Because predicting the broader economy is much more difficult. But when it comes to Full truckload moves, you know, a good portion of that is consumer staple driven, and so uh, that that just sometimes can be a little bit more resistant to the to the fluctuations in the broader uh, macroeconomic trends. And so, when we look at the supply, if I start there, uh, clearly I, I talked about uh, the drivers and 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 the reality of the crisis that we are uh, in, and and seems to be getting worse. And and so. Uh, that will be a limiting factor uh, to growth. And if you look at this industry, there are relatively few barriers to entry. And so regulatory-wise, there are virtually no barriers to entry. ELDs will represent the first. Now, it's not an insurmountable, but it, it, it will be a meaningful barrier to entry in the space that might change things a little bit into the future. We don't know how that will all work. What we do expect is that uh, there will be Carriers today that are able to have li- that take liberties in how many miles they run, and in certain length of hauls that they do in a day that will not be able to be done in a day. And so there might be certain types of freight, certain length of hauls that seem more inflationary pricing than others because they've been artificially kept lower because of a driver being able to do that in one day. And so, so there'll be areas that we'll see kind of spike, and that will be attractive to small carrier capacity. But again, the driver issue and paying close attention to what's going on in the used equipment market. When we saw 2014, we saw rates go up, but we also had a record high used equipment market. And so, and people hadn't added capacity since 2008, so their balance sheets were in good shape, and they had equity, and they had, they had collateral. This go-around, we don't see small carrier capacity with collateral. And so, as we move through the market, as we move through the next several quarters here, we might find ourselves flooded with more used equipment. That combination of drivers and used equipment could keep a lid on supply despite seeing uh, increases in the rate market. Now, if you look at what the purchase trans- transportation cost has done for brokers, and there are, you know, we've seen it ourselves. <clears throat> we certainly have seen it from the largest player, C.H. Robinson, and we've seen it in the other indices out there, DAT and Internet Truck Stop. That, that are all showing that purchase transportation costs, the cost to cover the load with a third-party carrier, has spiked like we've never seen spike before. Uh, in every other environment, that has always been followed by rate that, that, uh, that matches the pace. So we're going to see rates go up. And so the, the telltale question will be, how long will that go? And at what point does new equipment get added on the supply side? Now, on the macroeconomic side, uh, you know, with a 3.1% per, 3. GDP, if it holds up, I mean, you know, that's meaningful. Truckload, the truckload business does really well in a 3% plus uh, environment, a GDP environment, and especially when we can back up two or three of those in a row. There are, there are a lot of truckloads that go into new homes, for example. A lot of truckloads go into construction. And so, um, so the macroeconomic looks the brightest we have ever seen, or we have seen it since, since the downturn back in 08. And, you know, that's going to clearly play a factor. We think that if indeed the tax piece sticks, that's a big deal. Uh, I can tell you for our company, uh, over our 27 history, we if you averaged our tax rate every year, the average would be 39% tax. And the truckload guys, we're so fragmented, we don't get any tax benefits. Now, there are others, you know, that maybe uh, don't use tires but go on a rail. I'm not going to mention who they are. Their tax rates might be closer to the 20 or 25%. 
and uh, but we don't have any any extra perks. We pay full retail uh, tax taxes in this industry, and so I know that's big. That would be big for us, but it would be a, a I think a big windfall for business development and and could lead to even stronger GDP, which would be good for all of us in the supply chain. And so the economic outlook is pretty bright. So if I had to guess it, 18 is going to be a year where trucker the trucking companies uh, are probably going to are probably going to get some relief in terms of pricing that particularly what they've lost over the last two years but not because that's going to make them rich but that's going to start to get them whole and a lot of that maybe half of that or even more could go to the driver and and which probably leads that 2019 is going to be similar to that and we could we could see the world start to mature a little bit in this space and be a little less feast and famine. And uh, and so uh, hopefully the broader economy is picking up at a pace that it still wins. For, it's a win for everybody and increasing transportation costs doesn't steal from the bottom line. Give that crystal ball a kiss because I tell you, it really hasn't failed yet, Dave. It, that was a, uh, a wonderful macro and, and a drill down on what we might expect given your perspective as a leading economic indicator in our field. So we appreciate your time and sharing your thoughts, ideas, and opinions. And uh, we look forward to maybe getting back in touch with you in six months to see how the merger is shaking out, if that's okay with you. That'd be terrific, Keith. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to visit and certainly uh for those that are listening, many of which are probably customers of ours, we're grateful to them. For those that would like more information, uh, you can find out all about our services on uh, our two websites, nighttrans.com, K-N-I-G-H-T-T-R-A-N-S.com, or swifttrans.com, S-W-I-F-T-T-R-A-N-S.com. The Inbound Logistics Podcast is a production of Inbound Logistics Magazine. For the most in-depth information around logistics, transportation, and supply chain practices, get your free print and digital subscription at inboundlogistics.com slash subscribe. Connect with us via LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for the most current developments in the industry. If you'd like to leave us some feedback or have a topic you'd like to see covered in a future episode, call our dialogue line at 888-878-3247 or leave us an email at podcast at inboundlogistics.com. I'm your host, Jeff Vita. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time here on the Inbound Logistics Podcast.